you're listening to the teaching podcast of Crossridge Women's Studies from our fall 2021 study of the Psalms. Okay, last week I started with a beautiful paraphrase of Psalm 19 by um, Isaac Watts. And I have another paraphrase for you. I said on the app that it's not as intellectual, and it's not, um, but I will read it for you and you can figure out which Psalm I think this is a good paraphrase of. To mom and dad, I am sorry for talking back a whole bunch of times. It was wrong to talk back because I am not the boss. Peace on earth, to whom his favor rests. (laughs) Love, Hattie. (laughs) That that is from my youngest daughter. And I I keep or else I take pictures of a lot of the funny notes my kids write to me. And when they write one that says they just realize they are not the boss, I am keeping that forever because they don't often say that. Um... Anyway, it was peace on earth to whom his favor rests. If you're ever wondering how to close out your prayer and you can't quite get there, just throw in a good line from a Christmas carol and you're all good. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Or an Andre Crouch song. It's all good. Anyway, um, I was, yes, fortunately, I opened this drawer beside my bed this week and I reread it. And it just reminded me so much of Psalm 50. And it's very short. So I guess that speaks to last week. What we said is that don't think that your paraphrase has to be line for line as long as the actual psalm. Because if you can sum it up faster, it is about sort of getting the sense of the whole psalm. That's why we paraphrase. Not to have every line know exactly what it means, but what is the sense? And I guess for me, I thought this idea of I am not the boss just reminded me a lot of, of Psalm 50. So anyway, peace on earth to whom his favor rests. Welcome back, friends. It's so good to have you studying along with us. And I wish you could have been in the room with us this week as we spent some time reviewing everything we have learned uh, in our time in Psalms 50 and 69. But how about you? How's the paraphrasing going? I can tell you you're not alone if you're finding that to be the toughest study tool to master uh, this time around. I think a lot of us are embracing the idea that our paraphrases will be more meaningful, perhaps if we focus on summarizing the general sense of the poem more than translating line by line and word for word. This week, we started by sharing our observations together from Psalm 50. And I think it's fair to say that most of us were stopped short by verse 21 when God says, You thought I was just like you. We wrestled with questions like, How can a God of steadfast love, in the words of verse 22, tear apart those who forget him? And many of us were reminded once again that God does not want empty ritual from his people. 
Rather, he wants hearts that delight in his way and therefore order their steps to follow him. Listen into our time together as we grappled with this truth that God is the judge. And uh, peace on earth to whom his favor rests. Okay, let me give you a little summary of Psalm 50 here. Just sort of, uh, I, I was trying to come up with like, how how do we apply this? What's sort of our bottom line when we come away from this? And then we'll move on to Psalm 69 quickly. Um, I think that we should say, just in light of that verse that we all said, like, um, you know, you thought it was just like you that it's the bedrock of justice that God is other, that he is not just like us. That is the most important thing for us to understand when we look at the justice of God, that he is different from us. Um, And actually, some of the translations, and maybe it's the ESV, some of them say, you thought the I am was just like you. I thought that's so interesting because that name I am, like the divine ego, emi, or whatever it's called, I am means like self-existent, totally other. And that sort of drilled home the point even more when you read it that way. Um, He is the judge. He is I am. He gets to be the judge. And in the words of of Peter, I also thought about 1 Peter 4, where he says it's time for judgment and judgment starts with the household of God. It starts with his people. He's not going to all those wicked people out there and like starting there. It's like judgment starts with the people of God. Um, And we need him as the judge. And I think what I was trying to, what I was thinking through this week is that we actually can trust his judgment because he is other. That's one of the reasons we can trust him because he is holy. He is not like me. So if he is holy, then his judgment is holy, right? We talk about that often, that his holiness refers to everything about him. He cannot sin. He can't sin against me. He can't be sinful in his judgment. So if there's an issue that I think or that I see with the judgment of God, and I think, well, something's off there, then actually it's probably my thinking that needs to be realigned. Um, Yeah, he says, you thought I was just like you but I'm not. He, he is the only other being in the universe. And I like at the beginning of Psalm 50, how it says, and that is the perfection of beauty, right? It's, it can be a beautiful thing, not just a terrifying, awful thing, because it's also that. It feels that when you read it a bit. Um, and the most wonderful thing I think is that this incredible other being is inviting us into relationship, like we just said, this relationship of obedience um, and worship and he yeah like we said he wants our heart not empty ritual and he doesn't want wicked immorality either as we see in the second half of the verse Um, he wants hearts that love him that find their home in him that take refuge in him not from him right they run to we that is unbelievable right we run to this god for refuge instead of like running away because we're scared of him so so many interesting complexities there Um, and I think one of the questions that I had coming out of this was will you submit to God as judge 
Like, will I submit to him as, as the judge? And I think that we should say that it can be a safe place. And maybe you haven't experienced that, but I think it can be. God as the judge can be a safe place of grace, compassion, and love. And at the very least, we can know that from, from David. Like I said, if we keep reading, I think it's fascinating that Psalm 51 is right after this. Psalm 51, a psalm, one of the few psalms where we actually know the circumstances. We know exactly what David did. We know God considers it sin. He ought to die for what he did, right? According to the law. And yet, here's what it says. Be gracious to me, God according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it, but you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Oh God, I think that's just beautiful to see this example of David. Now he knows that God is holy and that he's the judge and this is how he responds. So just a couple questions out of Psalm 51. We can leave it because we're going to move into Psalm, the, the next Psalms this week. But maybe in what ways have I been guilty of assuming God is just like me? I think that's a really good thing to ask. And you can talk about that in your group if you need to. But how do, you, how do I sometimes assume like, yeah, God is definitely on my side. He likes the people I like. He hates the people I hate. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I just want to say that I think if we could truly embrace this idea of God being not like me, I think there is tremendous beauty and freedom in that. That leads to real flourishing. Yeah. So how are you doing, friend? Do you see this idea of God as other, as holy, and therefore as rightful judge, as beautiful and freeing? Or are there areas where you need to realign your thinking with the truth of what God says about himself? I will pray that as you continue to meditate in the Psalms, that the Holy Spirit will keep shaping you and forming your understanding in a way that will bring new life to all the ways these truths are currently playing out in your day-to-day -day life. But for now, let's move on. In Psalm 69, we rode the roller coaster of David's emotions, and we were struck by some similarities to Psalm 50's talk of empty ritual and sacrifice and this repeated idea that what God wants of us our hearts engaged in worship obedience and trust one of our women shared with us her very personal connection to the central emotion of this psalm and the way it shaped her thinking feeling and action this week by reminding her to move her prayers out of that beginning stage of inner devastation and turmoil to a more upward stage of declaring everything that is true about God. She prayed for us that our eyes would be open to everything true about God 
and that we would stand in that truth. And from that solid footing in truth, that we would view our difficult circumstances rather than seeing things the other way around. Here's some of our conversation on the way Psalm 69 might apply to our life as the body of Christ, the new family of God. Some scholars say, and they even they will say, well, we don't exactly know, but some scholars say that they feel like it's towards uh, later in his life where he was funding the building of the temple because he talks about zeal for your house is what is causing the conflict. People didn't like that he was so aggressively going after securing all this for the temple. Um, and he wasn't going to build it. Solomon was going to build it. But so some, some scholars suggest that they think that. Something interesting is that I actually don't think the last stanza was written by David. I think it was an editorial note. And the only reason I think that is because it talks about Judah. So that's too late for David, actually, because that's divided kingdom. I think that was actually added at the end because they wanted to use this prayer of David's for the people. Like the editor of the psalm wanted to, they, they collected all these prayers and they put them together for worship of God's people. And I think they, they wanted um, something specific. And I think it's what, um, what you said, Sharon, how he's sort of all over the place. There is sort of this movement for David and he kind of cycles through it, but it's sort of inward, outward, upward. That's exactly what you said. Doesn't that feel good? Yeah, because he's all like, he's in on his feelings, right? Like he's totally overwhelmed is like the word I was thinking because it's like he's in the water. And then he starts to go outward. He's care like he's saying, oh, don't let this affect the other Israelites. Like your people, don't let this affect them. And then upward, like then he looks to God and then he kind of goes back into it. He's like, he's in his feelings. He's in his feelings. And then he's like, Lord, like use my faith to build my brothers and sisters. And like, like you said, I think that was the biggest thing that I saw is that my faith is not about me, especially in suffering, especially in the hard times that um, like our, the way we respond, our narrative, how we talk about things, how we serve, how we choose to show up or withdraw or whatever, we're actually like part of this body who needs us. And there's a counter narrative, I think, in our culture that says, you know, you're all, your life is about you and you're an individual. And I think when you are part of the body of Christ, there's something different. And it's not this, like, I, my faith is not just about, like, my plan for my eternal destiny and my own self-improvement plan. And this is how I get peace is that, well, I read my Bible and I go to church, so I'm feeling pretty good, right? A, a big part of this is like, and I think David, the anointed king, shows us that our faith is, there's this radical connectivity maybe between his faith and the people of God, how he responds, how he lives in this actually affects the people around him, his brothers and sisters who are Israelites. And I, I don't know, I think going forward through the story, you'd be hard pressed to think that the disciples didn't didn't dis or did or disagreed with that, right? I think they see that interconnectivity too. Their faith 
impacts the body and how they how they how they live affects this family now they're part of a family and there's this connectedness um and so my question out of this sort of was do you believe it do you live like that like do you live like how you talk about these ideas or these circumstances you're in the choices that you make in light of your circumstances do you the way you show up how you show up to church when you come your narrative that you're talking about when someone says how are you doing what's going on in your life like that has the power to build faith in the body of christ that's amazing and and i thought what if we crossridge gathered every week what if all of us believed that we're not here for ourselves that we don't come to church for ourselves we don't come to like feel good and to worship god and like oh i really needed that right what if we came every week and what if we came to women's study and anything that when we gathered with our brothers and sisters what if every time we came together we were intentional about how we were building the faith of the body in fact we asked this question how can i come alongside god in what he's doing in her how can i come alongside god in how he's working in him like and be open to the spirit using me in that that's powerful to think about that um yeah, and it just made me think, I have to stop now so Jill can talk. But I think there's some struggling, people struggling in this church because some people are not showing up. And because some of us have maybe, through COVID, maybe, maybe not, but just it, it can be really easy to just come when we want to come, when it ser serves our schedule, Maybe even just saying, hey, it's super convenient to watch on the TV in my pajamas, right? And then what if that's affecting the faith of, of others, of our brothers and sisters? Um, and if that sounds like a heavy responsibility on you, you signed up for it, right? This is what we said. We want to be part of this family. We're going to commit ourselves to it. And there's actually life in abundance at this table we all come to we are at this table because jesus has said we get to sit at this table and so let's get to the table there's abundance and there's life there right something is required of us in this something is required of us our faith is not just about us so yeah anyway i i came away with that that was the most important thing for me and there was a lot there. Okay, it's time to reflect. What was your biggest takeaway from these past two weeks? And how are you being formed in your thinking and your feelings and your actions? What needs to change this week? Who are you sharing this all with? As you go about your day and are face to face with all the people God has intentionally placed in your life, I would encourage you to ask, how can I come alongside how God is working in this person? Let us be the kind of women whose storytelling and serving and showing up build up faith in others. And let's not waste any opportunity for this this week.
Well, finally, it's time to move on into book three of the Psalms. So here's a look at what we'll dive into over the next two weeks. We're moving into the next book of the Psalms, which is book three. It is Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview, just take like 10, 15 minutes here quickly and tell you what to expect. And it's not good news. I just need to let you know. <laughs> no, it's, that's not true. Actually, it's not true. Uh, so if we said that book one, sort of the title was this confrontation of good and evil, um, and then book two was sort of about this invitation to partner with God and his law and his king. Book three's um, title is often described as or called out as devastation. So that lets you know kind of if you didn't think you were in the mire enough, <laughs> if you weren't like totally sinking with David in Psalm 69, you can go lower in the Psalms. So we're going to do that this week. Book three is looking to God as the nation falls apart. So where are we in the big story? You can, If you think about it that way, if we think about um, the Psalms sort of being this picture and going, going over this arc of God's people, this is the point where uh, God's people go into exile. Okay. So they're taken from their homeland. And um, so that is sort of the nature of their devastation. They are taken from the promised land um, and taken away. Just their, their home is destroyed by foreign enemies. And actually, this is the pattern. We see it in the Old Testament and the Psalms sort of reflect this same arc. And it's helpful to always remember this is the big story of the Bible. God's people are formed to flourish in relationship with him, right? That's what we saw in Psalm 1. They're given instructions for wisdom, and then they choose independence over trust in God. And because of that, they are exiled or scattered. It happens over and over in the story of God's people. Uh, we see it right away with Adam and Eve. Obviously, I'm sure you were thinking about that, but we also see this with Israel and the promised land and they're exiled. This is what Ezekiel 22 says. <clears throat> Ezekiel 22, 29 to 31. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Yikes. This is the part of the story where Israel has forgotten God. They have chased after idols. And in the words of Psalm 50, those who have forgotten God are going to be torn apart, away from the promised land and the abundance that God had offered to them. Um, interestingly enough, the words for trust, wait, fear, believe, these sort of key words, specifically the phrase 
trust in the Lord all but disappear in book three. 50 times in the book of Psalms, we hear that phrase, trust in the Lord or believe in the Lord or put your faith in God, wait on the Lord. And it's only, we see that only three times in book three. So, so what the editors of the Psalms are showing you is that this was a dark period in history, Israel's history, where they had forgotten what it meant to trust in the Lord. So the theme of exile in book three is seen through a couple of key ideas. I want you to watch for that this, this, this week. There's some imagery of the two houses, talks a lot about the sanctuary. Okay, that's one of the houses. Also talks about the house or the line of David. Okay, so God's house, David's house. The sanctuary comes up often. I just scanned through and I saw it in Psalm 74 couple times, Psalm 78, 79, 84, 87. And there's other references that don't specifically say the sanctuary or the temple or God's house, but that you get the sense of that. Scholars believe that Psalm 80 is actually uh, a psalm that was written out of the pain of 722 BC. So if you know your Bible timeline and you're starting to know those numbers, you'll know that that is when the Assyrians came and carried away the northern, cap, the northern tribe of Judah. So if, if you want to just do more reading, Psalm 80 is supposed to express that devastation of the northern kingdom being destroyed and carried off by the Assyrians. Psalm 79, so not in chronological order, but Psalm 79 right before Psalm 80 is actually thought to detail Psalm uh, 586 B.C which is where Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the southern kingdom and like burnt the temple to the ground. Okay, so that's what we're in the thick of it. And, <clears throat> and in exile, people are separated not just from their land, but from the temple, from the sanctuary. This is a big deal. We, we can't quite get there in our modern day relationship with God and understanding, but they're not only separated from um, the sanctuary, but they're, they're separated because of that, because they're separated from the temple. They're separated from the king, right? Jerusalem is destroyed. That is where the king sat. There is no king anymore in Israel, and they're separated from their law. That's what the temple was about, was them following God's law. Um, and so the cause of distress and devastation, I think that we see in Psalms, in Psalm book three, is this important question in light of exile is, where now do we meet with God? How do we find our way to God if the temple is gone? Is the relationship completely destroyed? Is there hope? Like, where is God and where is the king? That's what they're wondering. It's kind of an existential crisis for them. Um, and scholars say lots of these psalms they think are were written during exile. Um, there's a real also because of out of this, there's this sense of longing. So it's not just distress and devastation, but I think there's a sense of longing. They're longing for the presence of God. They're longing for the his house to be with him. In fact, the, the, there's this phrase, how long, O Lord? 
you probably recognize that from the Psalms. You see it in book one, I think Psalm 6 and Psalm 13, but you also see it a lot in this book, Psalm 74, Psalm 79, Psalm 80, Psalm 82, Psalm 89. All use that term, how long, O Lord. And Psalm 84 specifically is has the title, Longing for the Presence of God. Um, who writes these psalms? Well, 73 to 83 are written by Asaph. So we saw him in book two, a minister in the courts of the Lord before the temple, or before the Ark of the Covenant, sorry. And Psalm 84 to 89, mostly except for one, but just think 84 to 89 are written by the sons of Korah. So it's the two groups that we've seen before. And then there is one solitary Psalm 86 is written by David. And it's interesting because at the end of book two, we, we saw that like thus ends the prayers of King David and Solomon. And so what commentators and scholars say is that these books were compiled over time. So this one, first of all, they had this one, and then this one, and then like later on in exile, people were writing these psalms saying, how long, O Lord? And then, and the editors saw fit that this one single psalm of David belongs in there. And actually, if you, if you look at it, you can see why it does belong and why it needed to be there. Um, but it also does something very interesting because for the reader, it sort of embodies this question, where's the king? What happened to David? <laughs> we had all these psalms by David, and all of a sudden, where is he? He's all but disappeared. 81, chapter 81, is the center point of the book three. And let me just read you verse 11. <clears throat> this is, the Lord is speaking in Psalm 81, he says this, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. That is the cry of God to his people. Oh, that Israel would only listen to me. So just finally, here's where we're going to stop this week, these next two weeks. First of all, we're going to stop in Psalm 84, the Psalm about longing for God's house. And this is why I say this is a really devastating book, but when you go to Psalm 84, you're not going to feel devastation. I do want you to think about it, though, because um, actually I've, I've always loved this psalm since my children were little, and we can talk about that next time we come back. But um, I've always loved this psalm, and I read a lot. But to me, knowing that it was written um, after the temple had been destroyed, then to hear the psalmist say, how lovely is your dwelling place. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. Like that was just unbelievable. So I want you to, to think about that. Do you ever feel this desperate for the presence of God? Might you 
if you were an Afghan Christian, might you feel that sort of longing if you were a, a Chinese Christian in an underground church, right? Lots of our brothers and sisters actually probably feel this. Did maybe COVID give you a tiny iota of an idea of what that might feel like to long for the presence of God? So, yeah. And finally, just maybe think about, <clears throat> as you're reading this, if all you had left was this idea of the presence of God, would it be enough? And what does that say about you and your faith and what your faith is actually in? If all you had was this idea of the presence of God, which, to be honest, is, is not a super concrete idea. And it definitely wouldn't have been to Israel in the midst of, of exile, especially when they had no temple, right? Okay, before I tell you the other place we're going to go, let me tell you that Psalm 89 is the last psalm in book three. It talks about the downfall of the Messianic king. It actually says that God has thrown David's crown in the dirt. Okay? It's over. The Messianic line is over from the psalmist's perspective. And now what? It is devastating. There's a lot of questions about what God is going to do <clears throat> and, and if he is going to keep his promise. Um, and you can go there because it's a little, if you need to, this is a little less depressing than the psalm right before it, which is where we're going to go. Psalm 88 is the most devastating psalm in the entire collection. It is totally negative. There is absolutely no upswing. It deals with death. Why am I sending us here? I, you know, I, I struggled long and hard with where, which Psalms we're going to do. And this last week, as I looked ahead, I was like, oh, why did I do this? But I actually like to send people here when they tell me the Psalms are just fluffy. I've had people say, oh, the Psalms, that's just fluff. Like, then you go read Psalm 88. Sit in that for a while. Um, as you read Psalm 88, do a couple things. This will help. And then if you need to, just go elsewhere in book three. That's fine too, right? But ask this question. Why does this psalmist still pray? Because that's a fascinating thought when you read it. Why does he pray? Considering everything that he says. And then I, I just invite you to sit in the sadness of Israel. They are exiled from their homeland, but they're exiled from the sanctuary and their king. They, they have, there is so much separation between them and God. And just try to imagine what that would feel like. Um, because the counter story today, I think, is there's no suffering for God's people. Like some Christians want to tell you that, right? Uh, that if you are, then you're doing something wrong. Maybe you don't have enough faith. And actually, I think Psalm 88 does something beautiful is that we can take comfort in the fact that we can have feelings as big as this and we can express some of these things that psalm 88 says and that can coexist with real faith in god 
So you'll see that when you go into it. Um, just because you feel this way does not mean you have no faith. So there's a place to go with it, right? You don't, maybe don't just stay there, but it does not mean that. Secondly, I want you also to consider that some scholars um, think this, it's really helpful to see this psalm as sung by Jesus. Okay? Not saying that he did, but just that there, there's a, a very prominent psalm scholar who says that it's really helpful to think of all the psalms is ask these, this question, is this one sung to Jesus or by Jesus? And I think it's really powerful to see this Psalm 88 sung by Jesus. And here's why. Because even in the darkest of our laments, none of us will ever walk through the deepest valley, that of being forsaken by God, that of utter, utter, utter condemnation for all the sin of the world. That is what Jesus did, right? I think it's, it's hard to say this. It sounds strange, but it's beautiful to read Psalm 88 and think of Jesus speaking that. Um, and that's the hope in us in all laments, that the answers to the questions of, of Psalm 88, it asks some big questions about death, and the answer is resurrection life. And we know that, and we can praise God that we know that. So while we sit with Israel in, in her suffering, also we can rejoice that we see the entire story. Okay, even from the devastation of Psalms, book three, um, there is hope coming. So hang in there over the next couple weeks in book three of the Psalms. Wherever you're at, thanks for studying along. It's our continued prayer that as you seek refuge in the sanctuary that is the Psalms, you're formed in real faith, that you grow to delight in both God's law and his king, and that you know and experience firsthand the freedom and abundance found in covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you want to connect with us, you can find us online at crossridge.church forward slash wstudy, or you can email us at carolyn at crossridge.church. Grace and peace to you, and we will see you soon.